Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our big island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Welcome to Island Conversations. On Sundays, you may hear Island Conversations if you're on the Big Island of Hawaii on the radio and KWXX and on B97B93. And the interviews rebroadcast the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. You may always find Island Conversations as a podcast wherever you get podcasts or at kwxx.com or at b97hawaii.com. Our island is subject to many threats, many disasters, from lava flows to earthquakes to even blizzards up on our mountains to tsunami. World Tsunami Awareness Day was November 5th, and the 45th anniversary of the Halape quake, which caused a big tsunami, is November 29th. So it seems a real opportune time to talk about tsunami. Our first guest is a man who is very familiar with disaster, serving as the Hawaii County Fire Chief and then head of Hawaii County Civil Defense under the Kanoi administration, and now working as the safety and internal control manager for HPM. I've had many opportunities to talk with Daryl Oliveira in his roles, both as fire chief and head of county civil defense, and I could not be more confident in his ability to help everybody be safe. Welcome, aloha, Daryl Oliveira. Aloha and good morning, Sherry. Thank you. We're also really delighted this morning to have as our guest, Dr. Walter Dudley, Professor Emeritus from University of Hawaii at Hilo. He is one of the founders of the Pacific Tsunami Museum. He's written books on tsunami. He has kind of lived tsunami. Although he officially retired in 2011, he has stayed very involved and in fact has two new books coming out about tsunami. Dr. Walter Dudley has gotten acclaim for his work on tsunami hazard mitigation and has assisted communities and countries throughout the world and has been a consultant on tsunami to the United Nations and to the State of Hawaii Civil Defense, among others. Joining us, believe it or not, from his second home in France, Dr. Walter Dudley. Aloha. Aloha. It's a real pleasure to be here with you both. Dr. Dudley, let's start out with what exactly is a tsunami? People use the term tidal wave. They use the term tsunami. Help us understand the basics of what tsunami is. Okay. First of all, it has nothing to do with the tides. That was just an old term, which was inaccurate. And the term tsunami is Japanese, which means harbor wave. And the Japanese have been being struck by tsunamis for, well, thousands of years So it's fitting to use a term that's caused so much devastation in Japan. It's a series of waves. It's never a single wave. It's a series of multiple waves, which are really long wavelengths. That means the distance between crests. You know, for surfing waves, it might be 100 feet for big ones. Tsunami waves can be several hundred miles between waves. So the period of time between waves also can be anywhere from as little as 10 minutes to as much as two hours or more. So they're really long wavelength and long period waves. We had the chance to observe that here in 2011. And Daryl, in 2011, you were still county fire chief? Correct, yes. 
you know, we hadn't had a big tsunami like the 2011 tsunami for many years. And I know even many first responders had not seen tsunami. And that's one of the things that the police were commenting on when a 2011 tsunami hit the Kona side of the island. They thought after the first wave that everything was good. But then 45 minutes later, there was a second wave that was bigger, and then that continued throughout the day. So, Dr. Dudley, that's something we finally did have a chance to observe here on the island. But what causes tsunami? How do they happen? They can be caused by large earthquakes. Typically, it takes an earthquake of magnitude 7 or greater, but also by volcanic eruptions and landslides in the sea. So, all of those different things can create tsunamis. And a relatively small earthquake could trigger a landslide. So those are the three main factors, the big earthquake danger, the volcanic danger, and that from landslides. Some earthquakes are big, but they do not cause tsunami. Other ones are big and they do cause tsunami. So why would they cause or not cause a tsunami? Well, in order for an earthquake, a big earthquake to create a tsunami, it has to lift up part of the seafloor or drop it down. That moves a whole lot of seawater. If it goes just sideways, you know, on land, that can be devastating and knock buildings down and be deadly. But as long as it goes sideways, it doesn't move a whole lot of water. We are affected by tsunami that are caused by distant earthquakes, such as the earthquake in Japan. Or we've had earthquakes off Alaska that have caused us to have tsunami. But talk about what happens when we have a local earthquake, something that is here on the island or just off the island and how they cause tsunami and kind of how that works because we don't have very much warning when it's a local one. Well, effectively, we can have almost no warning. If there's an earthquake that generates it because it moves part of the seafloor or there's an earthquake that sets off a landslide or a landslide can just be set off by heavy rainfall, there may be no warning whatsoever. The warning system, as good as they are, just doesn't have the time to send out a warning for an event that can arrive in two or three minutes, depending on where you are. And if it's, say, it was like off Kalapan in 75, it got to the campground there in Holopay in like five minutes, but it had spread throughout the rest of the state only 40 minutes later. Daryl Oliveira, that kind of brings us, when you talk about warning for earthquakes, educate us on how our state and county emergency agencies, the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, Hawaii County Civil Defense, how do they respond when there is a potential or an actual tsunami? Give us a sense of how we, the public, are protected by these agencies. Well, probably the first thing is, you know, the public should take a lot of confidence in the system because we have really great coordination and collaboration in the system here in Hawaii. You know, one of the things is we have the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center right here in the state on Oahu. So they're constantly monitoring these seismic or earthquake events around the Pacific Basin and elsewhere. And the minute something happens, they are quickly monitoring and evaluating the data post the earthquake or that seismic event to include looking at these deep ocean buoys and just tracking the, the energy as it was released and seeing if a wave has been generated. Almost instantly, they put out a message, at least to the government officials and emergency management officials, that the event has happened and that they're evaluating it to determine if a tsunami has been generated. From that point, you know, on the local level, once the county gets information as far as an event has occurred, it starts some internal communication amongst the different key agencies, police, fire, public works, civil defense, obviously coordinating that, and just letting the departments know, hey, something has happened prep your team and start implementing some of your pre, uh, let's say, warning or watch um, procedures 
Like in the case of fire, one of the things, again, the public may not be aware of, if, if we're notified of a distant uh, seismic event with the potential of a tsunami, we start to prepare to fly the coastline because we have people in remote areas, campers, people fishing, taking advantage of our coast, even remote residents, such as in the back of Waipio Valley, uh, other areas. You know, we start to use that time to reach out and let people know because, one, there may not be a siren for them to hear. They may not have radio reception where they're at to get messages. And obviously, they may not be out of any kind of communication, cell phone or otherwise, to get information from family or friends. So those are the types of activities as well as, you know, public works. If it's something that seems credible, that there's likely to be a, an upgrade from a watch to a warning, bringing back staff, ramping up procedures to set up the roadblocks, barricades, etc., getting messaging put together. You know, civil defense is really good about as soon as the event happens, if there's any question, letting the public know, one, there hasn't been a tsunami generated, or we're moving into a watch, which means something has happened and we're going to see it, you know, as far as monitor the situation and keep you informed. That's why it's so important that, you know, for a distant event, the minute people hear any kind of uh, information circulating via social media, tune into your local radio station because together with our local broadcasters, we're getting information that is very pertinent and relevant to our community and keeping them informed. Daryl, when you said the county's helicopters, and we have two fire department helicopters, that they would go up, do they have loudspeakers or do they land and tell people or tell us how it works? And it's not just fire department. We also have the Civil Air Patrol. The hmm. Coast Guard will, will put aircraft in the air the National Guard. So it just depends on the level of threat. But yeah, for the fire department, we do have speakers, uh, we, a PA system. We also have sirens so they can fly by and, you know, sound the siren. But in many cases, especially these remote areas, we will land and let people know because what we want to tell them is that, especially if it's just putting them on a watch, something has happened. Consider moving to higher ground if you want to stay in the area, but monitor your radio station and listen to the information coming out. Because, if again, if it's downgraded and there was no event, they can continue to enjoy their activities. But to take precautions, moving to higher ground as they wait for that information, because, again, things can change quickly as information comes out. I mentioned the 2011 Japan earthquake and tsunami, and we had had in the previous couple of years two big tsunami elsewhere in the world, and I think people were very tuned into the dangers of tsunamis. So when we had that and the sirens went off, people were very responsive and they evacuated and they did really the right things. You know, and that turned out to be pretty destructive. On the Kona side of the island, it wiped out downtown Kailua Village. It crashed through the first floor of the King Kamehameha Hotel. So people had a chance to see it, but that's nearly 10 years ago now and people's memories get short or new people are on the island. So what should people do if they feel an earthquake, regardless of hearing the emergency alert sirens? What should they do if the warning sirens go off? You've already mentioned that about tuning into radio stations and such. But I think that people forget, and we're going to talk more about the Holopay quake, that we can have a quake that is generated right here where we literally have seconds of warning. So tell us more, Daryl Oliveira, about how people should respond. Well, the key there is don't wait for government to tell you what to do. You're on the coastal area or at the shoreline or in an area that you know is close to the coastline. You feel a strong earthquake or an earthquake that has a pretty significant duration. Just move to higher ground. Don't wait for anyone to tell you. And I use maybe an example. We had an earthquake, I want to say it was in maybe 2010, a local earthquake that wasn't very destructive, but it had been, I want to say, a moderate earthquake. And obviously, we communicated to the public that nothing happened 
everything was okay. But there was a charter school down in the Kilkaha area behind uh, the old Big Island Candies. About two hours after the event, I get a call from the principal. Are they going to open the gate? We're at the gate. And I'm like, you're at the gate. Unfortunately, they didn't hear any of the communication because they don't have a radio in the school. But I really commended her because I said, you didn't wait for anyone to tell you what to do. If I was a parent with a child at your school, I'd be so happy because you made a good decision to just move and then find out if you did the right thing or, or could go back. But again, here was somebody that made a good decision. And the point I made with her then was that, you know, we have within our school system so many new faculty that have never experienced a large earthquake. And for parents who have children in school, we're really depending on them to know what to do and make good decisions and keep our kids safe. So, you know, as time goes by, like you said, Sherry, that institutional memory of these events goes away and we lose some of that historical perspective. So it's so important that we continue to have discussions like this and remind people about that threat and potential and what they can do. When you talk about the gate, to what gate was she referring? The airport? It was the airport gate where they crossed the airport. So, you know, like you say, how do we keep people aware? You know, one of the things, unfortunately, COVID kind of derailed things. But, you know, every November, the Kilkaha community in Hilo does a tsunami evacuation exercise. Every other year in November, they would actually physically cross the runway with the school kids. So, you know, that community has been really reinforcing the threat and what they need to do as far as actions and through World Tsunami Awareness Day, Tsunami Awareness Month, and all of us just talking about it, we keep that thought in our minds that we hope it never happens, but it's inevitable it's going to. It's so it's just not a matter of if, it's when, and we all just need to know what we're going to do. Dr. Dudley. The points that Daryl made are just excellent about the school. I went to Samoa immediately following the 2009 South Pacific Tsunami and American Samoa. And they had just had tsunami training in American Samoa. So as soon as there was the warning or just indications, they immediately evacuated the schools. There were actually teachers who overruled principals who said that they, quote, haven't had their breakfast meal yet. And they evacuated. Afterwards, they said that probably saved hundreds of children's lives. The fact that they'd been trained and they immediately did it. The difference between the training was huge. In American Samoa, there were 34 deaths, but in neighboring independent Samoa, there were 149 because they hadn't had training. They didn't have a decent communication system for tsunamis either. Well, and that goes back to the what Daryl said about personal responsibility. You may feel ridiculous leaving the beach to walk up a hill, and I think you only have to go inland here on the island around a quarter of a mile in general, if I'm right. Is that right, Daryl? Am I correct about that? That as well as if the elevation goes up, you know, if you can get uphill. In many places, it's pretty easy to get uh, 100 feet up just walking up a street. People don't need to get in their cars. They just need to move because the whole thing, like Walter, you just said, loss of life, that's something we don't want. You can lose your house, your possessions, but we don't want to have anybody lose their life over this. And one more thing, don't get in your car. So many people who got in their cars in 1960 were killed. There are going to be traffic jams. There are going to be people who are going crazy. And you have a much better chance of surviving if you're not squished in your car underwater. No kidding. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Today we're talking tsunami with former Hawaii County Fire Chief and former Civil Defense Director Daryl Oliveira and with Dr. Walter Dudley, Professor Emeritus from UA Chilo and who is the author of many books on tsunami and has two of them coming out this spring. 
and he was also one of the founders of the Pacific Tsunami Museum. We'll talk about that in a few minutes as well. Next week, it is Mayor-elect Mitch Roth. We'll be talking about where things stand with his incoming administration. He'll be inaugurated on December 7th, and our interview will air the day before. Before we return to our conversation, a word from our very much appreciated sponsor, KTA Superstores, which is very active in our Big Island community. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. Well, you mentioned it's not if, it's when. Dr. Dudley Walter, you have said that the tsunami threat to our island increases every day. Why do you say that? It's increasing throughout the Pacific. There are a number of important reasons. As weird as it may sound, little earthquakes are a good thing because they relieve the tension in these areas that are, we say, seismically active, which the whole Pacific is surrounded by them. Those places that haven't had those little earthquakes, the pressure continues to mount will someday be released with a bigger earthquake. We call them seismic gaps. And there are a number of seismic gaps. There's one right off the coast of Washington and Oregon called the Cascadia subduction zone. It's really similar to what caused the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. There's three big seismic gaps off Alaska. There's one off of Acapulco in Mexico. There's one off of Chile. In other words, we are surrounded in Hawaii because we're in the center of the Pacific and we were set to receive tsunamis from all those places. And every year that goes by without little earthquakes relieving the tension means the chances of a bigger one continue to grow. Another reason, sea level is rising. And our island, the big island, is sinking because of all the lava that's piled on it and tend to have more landslides during times of rising sea level. Really? Why is that? Because the water destabilizes them. You know, whenever you see a big poly, that didn't just form by thousands of years of gentle erosion. It happened because there was a big landslide. And you can find these deposits offshore. Studies have been done for years mapping these things out. And they caused big tsunamis. And there's good geologic evidence of tsunamis that have been up to over a thousand feet on Lanai that came from the Big Island. When you say a tsunami was a thousand feet, do you mean that the water was a thousand feet high? Fortunately, this was over a hundred thousand years ago, and there was nobody, no humans on in the islands then. But yes, the water rose up to that height, the highest wave. So these landslide tsunamis can be very big. They tend to be not crossing the whole Pacific like the earthquake ones, but as Dara was saying, you may get no warning. If it comes from an earthquake, okay, use that as your warning and head inland and uphill. But if you notice that the ocean suddenly withdraws or suddenly comes in in a weird way, you should go, uh-oh, and do the same thing, head to high ground immediately. Whenever I take students on field trips down to the ocean, that was the first thing we'd say before we would go snorkeling or studying beach sediments was, if you feel an earthquake or if you see the ocean behave in a strange way, evacuate. Don't wait to hear from me or wait for sirens. Just do it. 
Years ago, I had the opportunity to talk with a man at the old Ocean View Inn in Kailua Village. It's now Fish Hopper Restaurant. He was a kid in 1946, and when it was the Ocean View Inn or Ocean View Diner, whatever it was called, he said Kailua Bay did that. The water receded, and he said everybody was so surprised they went out and started picking up fish. And then, of course, the water came smashing back with a vengeance. Now, I want to talk about a specific earthquake, which is the Holopay quake. And you talked about landslides, Walter. The anniversary of the Holopay quake on this island is November 29th, 1975. So this is the 45-year anniversary. And I know, Daryl Oliveira, you have sort of a personal story about the Holopay quake and tsunami. So tell us what happened. Well, the personal connection is a Boy Scout troop that was down there. Troop 77 was a troop that I belonged to. So, you know, the Thanksgiving or fall break was always one of our longer backpacking trip expeditions. And Halape was always seen as the desired Thanksgiving break camping trip. So I'd gone down there the year before in 74 and was scheduled to go down uh, or part of the trip on seven, in 75. But at the very last minute, my parents said, you know, it's the holidays. We have family coming, stay home. And as luck would have it on that morning, I want to say around 3.30 in the morning, there was actually two earthquakes, uh, an earlier one that was about, let's say, a 5.7 that, you know, it woke everyone you know, across the island. And then the next thing you know, minutes later, there's a larger one of 7.2 that resulted in the ground dropping several meters down in that immediate area. And our troop that was camping down there, we lost one of our scoutmasters, Dr. Mitchell. Many of our friends were basically just slammed around in the crevices across the rocks in the campgrounds there. So a very tragic event, but again, a locally generated event with an earthquake off that coastline there, some, some subsidence at the campgrounds there. And then within minutes, you know, when we felt the earthquake here in Hilo, you know, my dad was a police officer, so obviously he has to go into work. So he leaves the home and as he's leaving the house, we can hear the sirens going from where we live. So you knew already that that tsunami event was being generated locally and impact was occurring within minutes of the the earthquake. I read a USGS report about that quake after I knew we were going to talk about it. And it said that actually the wave came into Holope within 30 seconds, that there was very little time. Dr. Walter Dudley, tell us more about the 1975 Holobay quake. Daryl did a great job describing what really happened down there. And like he said, the second quake caused the area of the campground in Holopay itself to drop. So the water just rushed right in. And then it was followed later by other waves that came from off of the earthquake site. So they really got hammered down there. A lot of people got washed into the big crack. If you've ever hiked down there, there's a really big crack. And didn't get sucked out to sea, but also got really badly beaten up, or in the sad case of Dr. Mitchell, were killed. And there was a fisherman who'd ridden down on horseback with friends who was also a casualty. He died down there. Yeah, I think people don't really realize how serious something like that can be, and it's very sad. Also, Daryl, one of your former Boy Scout compadres did an essay, Michael Spears, I think his name is, and that is also available on the state website. Really kind of fascinating to have these memories and kind of bad memories. I had read in the USGS report, they talked about the two people losing their life. And Daryl, you said when you went to Dr. Mitchell's memorial, many of your classmates were there, but all banged up? Yeah. So, you know, again, I was sharing with Sherry Pryor is that, you know, it's, it's one of those things as times have changed. You know, back then, nobody talked about it, but it was very, um, 
something to deal with, and that is we all participated as a troop in Dr. Mitchell's funeral services, and to see, you know, our fellow scouts participating but bandaged up, crutches, you know, it was just sad to see what happened. But like I said, we just didn't talk about it. And now, you know, you look back and I think talking about it would be a nice part of the healing process for everyone. I interviewed half a dozen of the scouts that were down there and survived. And it was never easy for anybody, any tsunami survivor, it's never easy for them to talk about the experience because in many cases they experience PTSD. But every single person has said it was cathartic, getting it out, especially with the idea that maybe their story would help people pay attention, learn what to do, and could save lives. I'm sure that a lot of people in that kind of situation also might have survivor guilt. Why did that person die or why did that person get so badly hurt and I did not? Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. Now, Walter, Dr. Dudley, you've written many, many books about tsunami. We had two major tsunami here in 1946 and 1960, and I believe you've written about both of them, both of which had serious impact on the island, both of which had a major impact on Hilo Town. So give us a little bit of information about those quakes and the tsunami, and then from both of you, key learnings from those quakes. Well, the 46, there was no tsunami warning system. There had been attempts by volcanologists who realized that a big earthquake could potentially generate a tsunami to give warnings they would call the harbor master. Sadly, they were sometimes ignored. And then in 1946, they were just coming out of the Second World War. And then that huge earthquake happened in Alaska off the Aleutian Islands. And there was radio messages about the tsunami. It took out a lighthouse. So the Navy sent a message out. Nobody paid attention. There was an aircraft flying back from Bikini that was headed toward Oahu who saw the waves going across the water. They sent out a message and everybody thought, because it was April 1st, that it was an April Fool joke. So there were a number of opportunities where people tried to send a warning because there was no formal warning system, but they tried to get a warning and either it didn't get through, it wasn't passed on, or it wasn't believed because of the sad irony of happening on April 1st. And caused deaths throughout the islands. People would yell and scream and everybody thought it was a joke. And like Dara was saying, people saw the water withdraw and went out to pick up the fish. And we had casualties on every single island. And that's something that people realize it's not just a Hilo thing. People died on Kauai and Oahu and Maui, as well as the big island. Daryl, would you like to add anything? I know you asked, like, you know, lessons learned and, and things that have changed. So, you know, out of those events, you know, that's where the warning system started to evolve and develop with a siren system, which initially was part of the, you know, obviously World War events with, you know, public warning systems, but expanding on the use of the outdoor warning siren for all hazards to also include better detection and monitoring and better communication and systems to track these things. But really, it's it's the stories of the survivors and the experiences that people have had that I think have been the most impactful with telling the truth about the hazard and really explaining the risk. And really, you know, like with Dr. Dudley and his work, we interview survivors and it's published in stories and retell those stories. It's way more impactful. The other part to that is, you know, when you look at the Japan earthquake event in 2011, prior to that, we had very little news footage, live footage, video that people could see and watch and watch this event unfold to really hammer home the hazard of tsunamis because there was still always the myth. People think some of these waves are surfable. This is not a surfable wave, but when you watch it on TV happening live and you can see cars trying to outrun that wave, you know there's people in these cars. They didn't survive. It really helped. I think where we're at technologically, 
the message is, I think, better today because of what we've seen, unfortunately, happening elsewhere. So I think when you mentioned that, Sherry, that people were very um, compliant with our warnings, it's because I think the more they've seen these events with their own eyes, they realize they need to listen. I think times have changed with what we have available to us to educate people with some of these, again, footage and and news versus what happened back in 46 and 60, very limited experiences that they could actually watch. I think everybody who has been to Hilo has noticed that the downtown is set way back from the ocean and that there's kind of a big flat catchment basin in front. Daryl, tell us why that is. If you travel through downtown Hilo and you, and you see the maps and the history and the photos, particularly at the museum, you know, you can see what was there and why it's not built anymore. And that's just to prevent any future loss of property and life and create that open space. It's a buffer between the ocean and obviously where we have businesses and people living. It's amazing to look back and see what was there and unfortunately was lost. In addition, there's good reminders. If you ever noticed the lighthouse in Hilo Bay, there are the markings of where the wave heights were. If you drive by, you'll see the markings are showing you. And, it, and it's really a chicken skin moment to stand there and look up at those marks, as well as on Coconut Island. There's at least one coconut tree that has all the wave heights there. The restaurant at the old Hukila Hotel, they have the wave heights marked on their windows. So, you know, when you see these things, it really, uh, I want to say, reinforces what it was and what we could see again happen. Pacific Tsunami Museum. Walter Dudley, you were one of the founders. Daryl Oliveira, you are on the board. Walter, what was the thinking in founding the Pacific Tsunami Museum? And then, Daryl, I'd like you to tell us more about what we can see there and do there. Walter. It actually comes from that first tsunami book I wrote. At the end, it said, if you've experienced a tsunami or have a story, write to me. I'd love to hear from you. And I got a letter from a lady named Jeannie Johnston on Oahu, who had been a little girl out in Keokaha in 1946. And as soon as I wrote back to her, she hopped on a plane and flew down, took me out to her grandfather's house where she was when the tsunami struck. There'd been a big party at the yacht club. And so her parents had stayed somewhere else and she was staying with the grandparents, she and her brother. And they were in the house and they saw the water and she called to her grandmother. She said, Grandma, there's water coming in. And Grandma said, oh, it's just big surf. And she said, Grandma, it's up to the clothesline in the backyard. And their uncle grabbed them and they left the house with the grandma. They fled up the hill and back through the forest and they all survived. But she said she could never forget it. She had nightmares for years and years. And she said she didn't want anyone else to ever go through that. And she lost friends and neighbors, of course, who were killed by the tsunami. So while she was visiting, she said, we should collect more stories. We should have a museum to tell those stories. And she quit her job, moved down to the big island, and we worked together to put the museum together. And I got to say, Jeannie is absolutely a remarkable lady. She works for FEMA now. And she went back to school and got a master's in disaster communication. And so she deserved most of the credit. Wow. That's a pretty remarkable story. So, Daryl Oliveira, tell us where the Pacific Tsunami Museum is and what's there now and the state of it, because a lot of things are closed right now during COVID. Thank you. And we're so grateful for Walt and Jeannie and the, you know, the original founders of the museum. You know, it had its humble beginnings in the Kaiko'o Mall as a small museum there. And fortunately, in, in 1997, the First Hawaiian Bank Corporation donated their downtown bank facility to then move the museum into its own building. So it's on the corner of Kalakaua Avenue and Kamehameha Avenue, right there on the corner. 
couple doors down from like people know where Sig Zane is at and Cronies. So it's right there on that corner. Exhibits, we have exhibits not only from our Hawaii events, but also from worldwide events. So we have a Japan tsunami exhibit. But really what's in there are the stories of the survivors and photos and images of those historic events to retell those stories and reinforce the messages. The mission of the museum is really to prevent any future loss of life associated with tsunami events. As you mentioned, Sherry, unfortunately, COVID has forced us to close doors for now, like many other businesses. But we're taking advantage of this opportunity right now, even though we're allowed to reopen, to move forward with some exhibit upgrades and renovations and improvements to make the next visitor experience, local or traveling from afar visitor, much better. They'll come in and see more interactive displays with some more, I want to say, modern digital type of viewing information. We have an upgrade taking place for our Japan tsunami exhibit. The other thing we're doing is we're expanding somewhat the scope of the museum and to take on an all-hazards information and resource outlet. You know, we see the museum has the draw with tsunamis and can tell the stories, and that'll always be its primary focus. But when you look at all the hazards that our island and our state is vulnerable to, the more we can all do to educate everyone about all those hazards, you know, we can keep all of us safe. So we're putting in a new learning resource center adjacent to our Japan exhibit to provide information on all the hazards that we're vulnerable to here on Hawaii Island. We're looking at ways to, again, just improve the experience for our patrons that have come back to the museum. And we hope to reopen the doors, hopefully early part of 2021, maybe January or February, but really taking this time to take care of some internal workings and business and just improve the image and services the museum will provide. Obviously, we have to train our staff too because COVID's not going to go away anytime soon. So we want to make sure that COVID experience is safe and, and healthy for everyone. Is there anything online right now that people can take advantage of to see what's in the Pacific Tsunami Museum? Yeah, we do have a website that you can get on. The first thing to come up is say, sorry, we're closed. But you know, through the website, you can see some of the information. You can see the archives. I mean, there's access to many different things on our website. Right now, it is focused on tsunamis, but eventually that also will be upgraded to take on that all-hazards education and awareness. What else would you two gentlemen like to add about tsunami or anything else before we say aloha? Walter Dudley coming to us from France. Just a couple of things. In the past, a lot of the problems in 1960 were due to people thinking it was with false alarm. The warning system has improved dramatically since then. And, and as Daryl mentioned, the seafloor buoys, the buoys at the surface which send a signal from a seafloor sensor to a satellite. If the warning center says there's a warning, there is a dangerous tsunami headed our way. There are no more false alarms. So you have to take those warnings very, very seriously. A couple of my phrases I'd like are, it's not if another tsunami strikes, but when the next tsunami is going to strike. And don't be scared. Be prepared. I love going to the beach. I like to stand up, paddleboard, and I like to dive. But I'm also, look, before I go in the water, where's the high ground? If and when, I want to be ready. And you have to think about your friends and your family. Spread the word. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Walter Dudley. Daryl Oliveira, what else would you like to add? We need to just always be vigilant that, as Dr. Dudley said, again, it's not if, it's when. So the more we can uh, talk about it, be prepared, have our own preparedness plans, again, all hazards, not just tsunamis, but as with this particular, it's look at the activities we are involved in, enjoying the beaches, spending time on the coastline, et cetera, 
And then also, what is your family's plans? I mean, know that. Like I said, you know, some of the schools practice their evacuations and their procedures, and we all just need to be aware of those and know them so that you can feel comfortable while your child is in school or is in an activity somewhere. They have a plan. You know what that plan is because when something happens, communication is one of the first things we lose just because the system will get inundated or, you know, it just gets crazy. So if everyone in your household knows what's the plan, everybody will feel a lot more comfortable. And that's when we can make really good decisions when our mind is clear and we're able to focus and we know what to do. Daryl, there are tsunami evacuation signs around the island. If we are above those signs, can we consider ourselves safe from tsunami? That's a good start. Those signs are put in place, not just identifying where, uh, well, it doesn't identify where inundation, it's identifying a safe zone to evacuate from within. It's also identifying a boundary that makes it easy for our government to manage an evacuation area. I always use the example, Kinoli Street, for the last several events that have impacted our island, water didn't reach Kinoli Street, but we need to use that as a boundary because we can, through police and public works, effectively control access and entry in there to do a nice, safe and orderly evacuation. But as Dr. Dudley was mentioning, there is the potential for larger earthquakes and larger events, depending upon the nature and location and how the energy is focused at Hawaii when it's released. So we should always just say it's just not a matter of getting past the signs. It's once we leave the area, it's finding a safe refuge. You know, it's, it's difficult because we don't have, let's say, standard tsunami evacuation centers because it depends on time of day, day of the week, where we might direct the public to go to. But what you can do is just look at some of these areas outside of those evacuation areas that you can take refuge, go there, turn on your radio and monitor because you got a radio in your car. Everybody's car has a radio. You can sit there and just listen to it and see what's happening before trying to get any closer. The, the other thing is getting further from those boundaries makes it easier for everyone else trying to evacuate the area. Traffic congestion. You just picture, I always use Kyokaha, you know that the auto dealers down there on any given day, if we have an event, they have to move over 100 cars each. That's that many cars on the road trying to leave an evacuation, the harbors with all the containers. So the more we can do as individuals to relieve that problem and congestion and stay out of the area makes it easier for everybody else. And one more thing, Daryl, you were civil defense, so you know this. The emergency sirens are not just for a tsunami. Yes, it's an outdoor warning system that is used for multiple purposes. The main thing is you hear a siren, turn on your radio. It's telling you to listen. There's something coming out in a message. Unfortunately, it could be even a false alarm. We have sirens. They're mechanical devices that on occasion will go crazy and turn on by themselves. So civil defense will get out and tell you there's no emergency. We have a malfunctioning siren. So you hear a siren, turn on your radio. Information will be coming. Thank you so much to both of you. This has been, as usual, a totally fun conversation and more than fun, important and interesting to let people know what to do. Thank you so much, Daryl Oliveira, former fire chief, former civil defense, and now with HPM. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you. And Dr. Walter Dudley, thank you for bringing all your experience to this. And when are your new books coming out, by the way? Uh, this spring. And thank you for doing this because this is so important to our community. We really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. Aloha. Aloha. Mahalo. And to our listeners, thank you a lot for being with us for this really important update on tsunami to sort of remind us how important it is that we pay attention. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Until next time, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoy ho. 
Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.